This is Impact, a daily look at how we are coping with the coronavirus in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman. It's May 6th of 2020. I feel I need to say the date every once in a while just to ground us in reality because this time feels so unreal, so slow motion. There is an election this year, a big one in November, and smaller primaries all over the country. Three months ago, that's all we were focused on. Suddenly, it's a dim ray of sunshine in a dark dystopian dream. Is it an illusion? Will we get there? What will the world look like when we get there? Will we fall into a vast ocean of COVID stew before we reach it? And what if we reach it and nobody cares? We'll talk about how to make people care about elections. But first... We're going to look at the news. We're going to look at the numbers from the Washington Post. We are up to 3.74 million cases worldwide and 263,000 deaths. 24,602 more people have been diagnosed with COVID-19 in the U.S. since yesterday. Uh, we are up to 1.22 million cases 73,241, which is about 32,000 more, have died since uh, yesterday. 32,000 more people have died since yesterday. 3,200 more people have died. In Nevada, 18 more people have died in the last 24 hours, bringing the total to 276. There have been roughly 70 more cases diagnosed since yesterday, which brings us to 5,663. For context, the New York numbers are at around 324,000 cases and 26,000 deaths. That is up 3,000 cases and 1,000 deaths since yesterday. And since that has been going down, that worries me a little bit. I'm going to bring in my co-host for today, Akiko Cooks. Akiko is the founder of No Racism in Schools 1865, and she is an activist. And I got to tell you, Akiko, it feels a bit like we're dealing with the end times. If I actually believed in the end times, it's bad enough that we're in the middle of a plague. It's bad enough that the systems we built to respond to such emergencies have totally failed us. It's bad enough that our economy is crashing and people are scared. Now, winter is coming in spring. A winter vortex is coming down from the north and is expected to bring snow, Akiko, to the northeast and mid-Atlantic and frost as far south as Georgia, which means temps will get below 32 degrees in Georgia in May. Akiko, if you would tell me right now that turnips are growing out of your nose, I would believe it. I would say, oh, I heard that's a symptom of coronavirus. What is going on here? Well, Carrie, turnips are growing out of my nose. (laughs) Oh, good. What color are they? Is it uncomfortable? Is it... They're, they're rainbow colored. Oh, God. My God. What is going on here? I, I, I mean, everything just kind of keeps hitting us. And, you know, it's it's a test to um, our strength and our unity, really. Like we we I do see people taking care of each other. So I appreciate that. Um, but you got people who are, who just can't. They're having a really hard time with with dealing with this and mm-hmm. it's it's like we keep getting one hit after another um so this cold weather that's coming is really going because I'm, I'm i've been looking forward to spring and you know i'm growing plants and right herbs and different things and 
um, it's going to be strange if it hits Nevada. Yeah, because... I, I don't think it is. I think that we're going to get hotter as yeah. usual, and uh, and the and the east and northeast are going to get colder, like you know, snow colder, which just amazes me. Right. Yeah, it's this is the times right now are. Um... Yeah, this is definitely something for the books. We this... will definitely have something to talk about when we are elders after the apocalypse, as we're growing yeah. from the ashes. <laughs> uh, so we're now getting reports <laughs> that doctors are worried about children coming in with a rare inflammatory shock syndrome that's related to COVID nineteen. So children have tested positive; they've never had symptoms, uh, hmm. but they get it weeks later. Uh, some kids even have like swelling in their arteries. The Washington Post did a story on children and COVID-19 in general uh, and confirms that kids still rarely get the disease or have symptoms from the disease. But the fact that a couple hundred kids have come in with relatively the same symptoms uh, is another lead in what this virus actually is. So, yeah, that's one more thing that we can add to our the world is ending sort of scenario here. Uh, and there are killer hornets coming and a full moon tonight. So, yeah, have fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'll be in the house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in the house. I will, too. Yeah, and I don't know about those killer hornets. I just kind of, like, saw that headline and was like, I can't I can't even look. I just Where can't even look. Where did they come from? I have like, no idea. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, let's send the killer hornets out now. It's yeah. getting boring. Maybe. Let's add something. Jumanji is happening. Jumanji is happening. Jumanji is happening. Yes. <laughs> Uh, this, the San Diego Union, this is something that you and I have talked about a lot. Uh, the San Diego Union Tribune's headline for today is First ICE Detainee Dies from COVID 19 mm. After Being Hospitalized from Ote Mesa Detention Center. I love how they use the word first as if they're expecting more. Mm-hmm. ACLU and immigration attorneys in San Diego have called the Ote Mesa Center, which is privately owned and under contract to the federal government. A death trap. Uh, I know that you have been working a lot on getting people out of prisons. You've you've just uh, finished a phone call, I think, on your Black Mama's Prison Project. Um, yes. What are we doing, get, keeping people in what what people call a death trap? So we're we're doing a lot of um, communicating um, and just real grassroots. Most uh, movement work where we are um, still talking to the prisons because you have people who have done their time and they're done, but they're not being released because they don't have an address to be released to. Right. Um, or you have people sitting in, you know, CCDC, Clark County Detention C- Center. CCDC. I know. I love that. Yes. With um, for traffic tickets like traffic warrants. Right. Um, so we've we've definitely been pushing to for them to continue to release these people. Um, and then when we're talking about the Black Mama bailout, initially it was for Mother's Day. And so that was our because um, we do participatory defense calls every Wednesday. But now Mother's Day is coming. So we're literally looking for some moms to bail out. We are doing our five dollar um, Friday fundraisers. Um, so that we can bail and then do post bail supportive services. So if that is housing, um, anything that they need, we're doing that. Right. Um, so that's what we were just kind of planning. What is Mother's Day going to look like? And how are we going to make Mother's Day special for these mothers? 
who are coming right out of jail. You know, it's it it sort of highlights the brokenness of our society here that we 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 have to keep people in overcrowded prisons and jails rather than find them a place to live. Right. Right. And yeah. Um and we uh, we we um mass liberation are not going to wait for our system to do it. We are going to do it for them. And we're moving in a very Harriet Tubman sort of way, freeing our people and making sure that our people are okay and they get to where they need to get to. Okay. Uh, Good news on two fronts here. Um, I like reporting some good news for a change. Alexandra Appleton of the Review Journal wrote about a teacher, Kenneth Brown, who won the new High School Educator of the Year Award. He teaches English and African-American studies at Sierra Vista High School. His colleagues surprised him with a video presentation last night. Great for him for, re- for winning this Teacher of the Year Award. Also, Sierra Vista has an African-American studies class. Who knew? Right. No. Yeah. Mm. I think that's good. Learn something new every day. Yeah. <laughs> You learn something new every day. I think I would like to, to find out what that is and uh, have them maybe share it uh, with us and maybe with some other high schools. Unless we not forget the stakes uh, for this election, one of the stories I've read in many venues is that three Russian doctors have fallen, quote unquote, out of windows after they reported on safety issues within their hospitals. We are not in Russia, but the guy in charge sure does admire Russia's tactics. I'm just going to leave that right here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well. Okay. That's, um. We're going to go right into the interview here. We've got two people that we are interviewing today. It is almost primary time. It's kind of crazy how inundated we are with phone calls and door-to-door canvassers and all that noise that comes out at election time. It's so confusing and cacophony. Wait, 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 wait. There is no noise? You didn't realize people were actually running for office and that you would be voting? Huh. Come to think of it, this seems like a quieter election. But the primary election is coming next month. And candidates are running for all sorts of local, state, and national seats, including all four of our congresspeople in this state. What are candidates doing to get your attention? Today, we are talking to Lisa Mosley, who many of you heard last week because Lisa is going to be now a regular co-host on this program. But she is also somebody who advises people on elections. She runs election campaigns. She was the political director for Bernie Sanders here in Nevada. And uh, we are also talking to Ed Gonzalez, who, who runs election campaigns. On the other side of the aisle, he works for Republican candidates. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Carrie. It's so good to be here again with you. Hello, Hello. Ed. Hello, Thank Ed. Thank you, Carrie. Good to be here. Um, I do, we didn't have the button push, so uh, I, I, I apologize if somebody said something and it was cut <laughs> off. Uh, so I, I want to start here um, because I think this is the crux of uh, what we are talking about in terms of your both of your different sort of uh, approaches to campaigning right now. I recognize there is fear about opening too soon. But the question that many are asking, when is too soon too late? So I left that applause in there on 
purpose, Lisa, Mayor Goodman has been roundly criticized nationally, but there were a lot of people in that room, including four city council members, who agree with her. Uh, what do you mm-hmm. say to that? Regarding opening too soon? Well, yeah. you know... I mean, I, I, I get I, what she's I, saying. Like, you know, we don't want to kill know, our I, economy. I, I get what she's saying, too. And I think to a degree, all of us are just ready to see our city opened up, if for no other reason than to go back to what we consider normal. Mm. I think this shutdown, this having to be in the home all the time or staying in the house and wearing masks if you're going out, you know, those things are just uncomfortable for us. It is out of what we consider normal. And we live in Las Vegas. It is the tourist capital of the world, pretty much. It's where our revenue comes from. People work in those industries. It's one of the places where you can have a high school diploma and still make significant money every year to support yourself. So everything that we have known as normal is being challenged. And so I think in addition to just wanting to see the economy going, people just want to feel normal again. People want to feel like, oh my God, I have the freedom to do what I want to do. Everything that we know as normal has been thrown off. Where kids are being homeschooled, people are working from home. So we're having to make these adjustments. And so it would be easier if we didn't have to make those adjustments, right? Let's just open up so that everything can go back to normal and we don't have to face any of this. I think that's part of what's driving it. But again, we all want to see our city back open back up. I don't want to see it opened up too soon. And what is too soon? Too soon is when we're not sure of what the implications of opening up are going to be. Too soon is when we are not sure if this virus is contained, if people aren't going to get it. That to me is too soon. And until we have that kind of information from the people that we are relying on in the medical field, I think anything prior to that is too soon. So um, I guess there's a balance here that we're looking at, a balance that spotlights this political, uh, philosophical divide in this country, right, between the economy and those who have been left behind in the economy, between democratic capitalism and democratic socialism. Um, What Goodman, I think, is saying is that if the economy fails, we will be in such utter poverty that we will die from other things and, and life might not even be worth living, right? Um, What other people are saying is that government is there just for these kinds of circumstances. You want to take that, Lisa, and then we'll go to Ed. Sure. I mean, I'll I'll add my two cents to that. Um, You know, we live in the United States of America, the greatest country in the world, that some will say. Whether this economy and whether we will totally fail and not come back from this is, is something highly doubtful for me. We are resilient people. We are a resilient country. And though there may be some businesses and things that don't come back or may have to come back in a different way, I seriously doubt that if we're going to see the demise of our our city, if we're going to see the demise of our country, I just don't think so. And I think it's government's job to step in in these cases and make sure that people are okay. And I think to some degree we are seeing that happen. Would I like to see it more? Absolutely. I'd like to see policy in place that prevents this in the first place. I mean, I worked for a candidate who was touting those kinds of policies. My position is that if we had these policies in place, 
if people made a living wage, if we had health care, if everyone had access to that, we would not be having to scramble to try to get people emergency aid as we are now seeing. So that's my position on that. And I think it's government's job to look at that. It's government's job to do what's right by all people, not just the people who are contributing to our campaigns, not just the people who are in alignment with our own values and our own belief, but to the people with good do right by the entire country and do right by everybody. Everyone wants to be able to take care of their family. Everyone wants to be able to live comfortably. That, that, transcends political mm-hmm. lines. It trans, transcends religion. It transcends political ideology. Everybody wants to be able to do that. So I think with that in mind, that's where our country needs to be coming from. So, Ed, I, a lot of my social media or a lot of social media that has passed by me, like on Twitter, uh, ask the question, why do Republicans want to kill people? Which is kind of a joke and kind of not a joke. Um, talk to me about the Republican view of this virus and whether or not you agree with it. Yo, Ed. Well, I, okay. I think some of the issues that I've seen, can you guys hear me? Yeah. I'm sorry. What the, the issues that I see at least going on around, and I mean, and you're talking to voters and thing, and you're right, there's a partisan difference on this. Yeah. Is it's one thing to sit there and say, hey, you know, someone's making a living wage, well, we shut down the economy in its entirety. And I think the biggest thing that we've seen, at least on our side, is that we listen to Syslack and we see, well, what's the plan? And we've seen two press conferences where we sort of don't really get much of an answer. You know, are we on phase zero? How many phases are there? It feels like we're on phase negative three. You know, with an economy shut down, it doesn't matter how much you're making. And people are struggling. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm just talking from the human aspect. I mean, you're starting to see mental health issues. People are trying to figure out how to pay their bills. And it's not just, well, I don't need to pay rent. I don't need to pay mortgage. You know, I got my stimulus check. Um, I can't get my unemployment. And yeah. people were seeing those mental health issues that normally you don't hear Republicans talk about start coming up. Um, you know, people so, want to see a return to normalcy as much as they can. But I think people are starting to get concerned and fed up with some aspects of this. And they start wondering, well, is there a better way to deal with this? As opposed to saying, well, we're not trying to kill people. So we I got to tell you, I got I to gotta, gotta jump in here, though, right? Because no. if we had had testing no. from uh, the get-go and from the top, mm-hmm. comprehensive testing and standards that were the same in every state, then uh, we would know how many people had COVID-19, how many people uh, have not had it, and we would be able to do contact tracing, and some people might be able to go back to work. Um, but we haven't, and, and this is a this is a failure from the top, in in many ways. So I don't like. I get that. I get that, you, that it's frustrating. It is frustrating to tune into a Syslac press conference and hear him say, "We're starting phase one when we think that it's right to start phase one," which is not a real concrete answer. But all the governors are having to scramble because the CDC, which is supposed to do this, has had its hands tied. So comments on that. <laughs> you know, there are things that governors can do, and that's, I think, what's frustrating. But I think what it is is that people were willing to for- Ed? Willing to stay home. Okay. Let's see how it is. But, they, but, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. No. Okay. So people were willing to Hello? stay home. They're willing to stay home, and this is what I talk to the average voter, and it's not just Republicans. We've had Democrats and nonpartisans say the same thing, is that they're willing to stay for, to see what was going on, but right now they're struggling, and they feel like there's better opportunities, or there's ways to sit there and do it. I mean, look, we all go to a supermarket, we go all to a Walmart, we go to a Smith's. 
you see how busy in traffic is and how much people are around them, and they mm-hmm. start wondering, is it really necessary to do what we're doing right now? Is there opportunities to open up? I'll disagree with one thing. Businesses are struggling. Businesses are going to collapse. We've seen some businesses say, once the economy reopens, especially in restaurants, they will not survive. Right. And so that's the effects of coming right now. We don't know what kind of economy we're going to have once we open up. We don't know what kind of tax base we're going to open up. And that goes not just to local governments, but also to schools. We're going to see drastic cuts. Is there a better way of doing it? We've seen some other states look at that, whether it's Georgia or Texas. Maybe we can open up a little bit and see if we can come up with a better way. But I agree with one point. People want to return to normalcy, and they don't see a path right now to get there. Interesting. So I want to move to uh, campaigning in the co- uh, time of COVID. Uh, I think both both of you are running campaigns right now. I'm not really sure. Uh, how is campaigning different when you can't send somebody out to a large gathering to shake people's hands? Lisa, you want to take that one? Sure. You know, I've been participating in quite a few calls, so to speak, or webinars on just that topic, campaigning and during COVID-19. You know, the the backbone of campaigns, and Ed can testify to this also, is face-to-face contact. It's knocking on people's doors. It's introducing yourself personally and making those phone calls to people. Well, what do you do when a time when you actually cannot do that? I think social media is actually a really great tool. I was just speaking with a candidate today advising her on some things that she she could be doing that are low cost or nearly no cost, but that is going to get her the kind of visibility, at least some semblance of, of visibility where she can get people to know who she is. Mm-hmm. Social media is one of the greatest tools I think ever invented. And unfortunately, I don't think we use it enough for these kinds of things. Campaigning, you know, we're posting pictures of our food, we're posting pictures of our cat, we're posting pictures. But right now, it is one of the most, one of the strongest tools that you can use in addition to using some of the media the platforms like um, WebEx or like even Skype. And what I'm advising candidates to do is you can still do phone banking, but I don't think anybody wants to hear from a candidate calling them and saying, hey, I'm running for this office. Can I count on your vote? People are hurting. Yeah. Everybody is hurting. This is nonpartisan. Republicans are hurting. Democrats, people are hurting. And the last thing people want is somebody calling them and asking them for money or asking them for their vote at this time. Yet you still have to make sure that these people know who you are. And I think that's the strength of leadership. And people want to see candidates that can find a way to do that. And one of the ways of doing that is, I think, being in in service, calling people and making sure that during this time, Mm -hmm. they have access to resources, that they have everything that they need, calling and checking on them saying, how are you and your family doing? Do you need anything? I have a list of resources. I have A, B, and C available to you. Have you been able to apply for small business loans? Have you been able to apply for for unemployment or whatever services those people need? People just like that personal contact. And though you were not able to do that face-to-face as much, you can still do that over the phone. So I'm advising candidates to take that approach, reach out to those people, do wellness checks with them. People will remember that come election time. I always say people don't always vote based on policy. Uh, we wish they did. Right. People vote on how you make them feel. People vote on whether they think you can be a strong leader in a time of crisis. This is a time of crisis. And I think for candidates across the board, it is a time to show what kind of leader you can actually be. Okay, Ed, I want, to, I want you to take that because I, I feel like Lisa is talking about incumbents. It's harder for somebody who does not have the name recognition 
who is running against a, a Democratic Congresswoman, because uh, two, <laughs> two out of the three of them are women, right? Or, or even against Stephen Horsford. Um, or two out of the three Democrats. Two of them yeah. Are women. yeah, right. Two, two out of the three yeah. Democrats uh, in Congress oh, yes. are women from Nevada. <laughs> um, but, um, and, or a Democratic Assembly or Senate person, uh, because the, this, the Democrats hold both of those, so they have the advantage of incumbency. So, how do you get past that in a time where you can't actually contact people, Ed? I think it's a little different because we're talking about a primary. And so you have primary voters who are just typically more engaged. If it was a general election, I would agree the fact that there may be some people like, I don't really want to hear this. But because you have that, you have a whole older demographic. I mean, I'm running a federal race. So, you know, as you guys are alluding to, I'm running for a Republican for Congress in CD3. And so you start thinking when, the, when COVID-19 started happening, okay, we start knocking on doors and then suddenly Syslac puts out the order and then everyone's trying to figure out what they want to do. What we ended up doing initially was almost like the front porch strategy that you had in the 1800s. Instead of us going to the voters, you invited the voters coming back. And that's where you got some of the social media. And that's where you had the teletown halls. We were doing a bunch of, we were doing up to three Facebook lives a week, just having people ask questions where you'd have 100, 200, 300 people pop on for half an hour and saying, hey, where do you stand on this issue and what's going on on stuff? And so there's plenty of low cost opportunities onto it. But I think the big thing that we've noticed is that there is a difference based on party. Um, Republicans seem to be a little bit more willing to pick up the phone, even possibly even talking to people, you know, whether it's, it's not necessarily canvassing, but, you know, they're willing to engage you if you're into the neighborhood and things of that nature. And what we're also seeing, too, is that people are becoming more restless. They're going out more. They're starting to talk. I would just naturally assume that a senior, if I saw a senior like a week or two ago, they wouldn't want to come near me, but they approach us, you know, even if I'm just dropping off some literature for somebody or putting up a yard sign and just finding out what's going on. And so there's some limited access to face-to-face -face conversations. Hmm. And so... To me, I think where it's tougher is that on federal, you usually have money at this point when we were, when we filed and everything happened. But if you're a new assembly rate person, if you're in an open seat, it's a little more difficult trying to figure out how you're going to do it. But it's a much smaller universe. And some of those seats, is only a couple thousand voters you're really trying to reach. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it difficult. You might not be able to pay for mail. You might not be able to raise much money. Um, but you still have opportunities to reach out to people. I mean, you just got to be really creative about it. But people are, are engaged in a certain aspect in the primary universe. I think they're more concerned, and I know this probably leads to the next statement, of how to vote. There's a lot of confusion about right, how to vote. Right, right, yeah. So yeah. we're going to get to how to vote. Uh, I, I do want to follow up on Ed's point, which is that uh, only about 1,000 people ever vote in primaries anyway. I'm being uh, – I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's a really small number. So what's the difference now, Lisa? You know, I, that is, that's an, something that we as consultants have dealt with in this business every year. You know, every election cycle in primaries. I remember when you had the special election for city council um, when Cedric career was elected. Right. I think the Democratic primary, there was just a few hundred votes in mm -hmm. that. You know, that's something we deal with all the time. But I think what might be different now is in this pandemic, people are looking at leadership as possibly failures. People are looking at the folks who are in office and saying, you know, maybe they failed us. So I think it's an opportunity for newcomers and to 
people who are running against incumbents to really make a name for themselves. And if they're creative with their messaging and they're willing to call people and, you know, just chat with people in the store, but you're also going to just have to be strategic about your targeting. You're not going to be able to talk to everybody. Right. Figuring it out who specifically you need to be talking to and who's who those voters are talking to those people and just trying to find out how do, how are they feeling in this time and using that to create your messaging for them. And I think that, like I said, I think people are looking at leadership now and saying these people have failed us and figuring, feeling like they're not getting any direction and getting any leadership. So I think there are opportunities for people who are running against incumbents and people who are running for open seats to really get make themselves and put themselves out front as the person to vote for. Interesting. So let's get to this mail-in ballots thing. Uh, Ed, there are there were two lawsuits against uh, the state about, or the, the county, about um, mail-in ballots. Uh, there was going to be just one voting center open and everything else was going to be mail-in. And the Democrats didn't like that, so they sued. They settled on that uh, yesterday, I believe, because now there are going to be a few more voting centers open. Uh, and now the, the Republicans have filed a lawsuit saying, I'm not sure. We can't do mail-in. It's illegal to do mail-in voting at all. Talk, talk to me about what that suit is about. Well, the biggest sale, well, I'll start back at least with my history. I sit on the Henderson uh, Charter Committee, and I've always voted against all mail-in ballot. There's opportunities for, for fraud. There's opportunities for mischief by having just an all mail-in ballot. I mean, you'll see situations like even the, if I talk to Sandra Costco, League of Women Voters, she would be, she would state there's always concerns about absentee ballots. But I think what's coming up at least with this lawsuits is that one, I think both parties are trying to figure out if this is going to go into November, how we're going to have with those elections. And, but then number two, with that settlement, um, with the county, um, I think the biggest concern that we have is ballot harvesting. And, you know, that's illegal here in Nevada, which well, is the opportunity for a non-family member to take a ballot and collect it. It's, you know, it's, it's right. legal in a few states. But that leads to an opportunity to mischief. And I think in the Democratic suit also, they didn't want to validate signatures. They said that the, the election department had no um, expertise in that, which I thought was the most interesting because – you know, we sign. That's how we do. don't have voter ID in the state. That's how we do verification is right. your signatures to verify right. who you are. And, you know, we've had stuff. I mean, you've got a, a mayor of people trying to recall Mayor Goodman. We've had the recalls in the past about that. And if they don't have any ability, then we wouldn't have any ballot initiatives. We wouldn't have any recalls. They would just assume all signatures are ballot. So I thought it was a strange argument. But I think for Republicans, the average Republican voter doesn't like mail-in ballots. They want to vote in, in person. And it's mostly, you'll see it along age lines too. They always have concerns about election integrity. And so it's interesting when you're seeing some of the Democratic points of saying we want more um, voting centers or areas to vote where some Republicans, like the average Republican primary voter, may agree with them on that. And in some other aspects where the average Democrat might agree with Republicans on something. So it's a really weird what these lawsuits are doing. I mean, I do have concerns about the settlement because I think it was done behind closed doors mm. and maybe an open meeting law violation. But it's just it's really interesting what you're seeing some of these lawsuits and what it's more of a political game that they're playing right now than trying to say, well, we really care about elections. Yeah. OK, so I want to I want to address this harvesting thing. So if it is illegal in Nevada and it is pretty easy to spot if somebody brings in 80 ballots or even 10 ballots. Uh, so um, I, I don't think, you know, I feel like that is a red herring. Um, I get the fact that, uh, you know. I lived and did business in Chicago for a long time, and uh, the biggest complaint we had it was I didn't get my paper. 
And um, I would I found out that there were just some mail carriers who didn't really want to <laughs> deliver it. Like it was the end of their day, and it was uh, it was second class, you know, uh, periodical mail, and people just didn't deliver it. It depended on where people live. So I, I'm not a I'm not a fan of the post office, but Lisa, the, it, this does seem to work in Colorado and in Oregon. Um, how is it going to work here? <laughs> are you asking me or are you asking it? I'm asking you. <laughs> well, <laughs> and we have about two minutes left. It, it just remains to be seen. You know, I share the concerns that Ed shares and the Democrats. I think we all just want people to have the opportunity to be able to vote. What that's going to look like, we remain to be remains to be seen. I don't think I, I don't support um, ballot harvesting. I'm glad it's illegal here. I don't support that at all. Um, but I do support people having access. And if that means having more voting centers where people can go and drop off their ballots and vote in person, then that's what it is. I just want to see pe- Everybody have access to being able to vote. And I think the Democrats are concerned that the Republicans are trying to limit that. The Republicans, rightfully so, are concerned about fraud. But we know statistics show that fraud in voting in this state is very little, Mm -hmm. very little. It's almost non-existent. And so I don't know if that's as valid a concern. But I think what we all should be doing is just making sure that people have access to be able to vote. It's our right. So we want to make sure that people have access to be able to do that. Okay, Ed, I'm going to give you the last word here on uh, mail-in ballots and how this election you think is going to go. Uh, Once we open up, um, how how is are, are people going to be more willing to engage? <laughs> Yo, well, I think that was it. You know, we, are, we do have some history. So we do have some history on the Republican side. In 2018, we had um, the public administrator's um, election. It was within, I think, 20 votes, and we and Joe Gloria found out that there was about like 40 or some odd votes that shouldn't have voted in that. And so we had an all mail-in revote for everybody who voted in that primary. So we do have some history, at least on the Republican side, to try to figure out some data points and go, what are we going to try to do? Um, but the biggest thing that we've seen, you know, that I've seen from voters is that they don't know the process. Like we have to teach them, well, you got to put it, sign the sleeve, put it in. Right. Yes, you don't need a stamp. You got to put it, mail it back into it. It's the general confusion about it. And especially even that first letter announcing you're going to get a mail-in ballot. People assume that was the ballot. Yeah, I did too at first. My- yeah. Yeah. My fear is that people are going to do what they do with the census. It comes in, they put it aside and they don't look at it again. And so that's the difficult part of people who are going to vote are probably voting very early. Like it's the same way with people who vote on first day on, um, on early voting. They vote the first day and they get out of it. We don't know what's going to happen after that initial batch. Are people going to hold on to it? Are they going to vote later? Or are they not going to vote at all? And that's the toughest thing in trying to figure out. You know, is it going to be a low or a high turnout? Right. It typically should be higher if you're getting it. But I don't know if anybody's going to be, vote simply because they got a ballot. If they're so, not inclined to vote in a primary, then what makes it giving it to them at home get them inclined to do it? I just want to add here that uh, if you get the census, fill out the census and uh, keep watching your mailbox for the voting ballot because you are going to be voting by mail. We're going to... End this episode of Impact right now. Thank you to Akiko Cooks for co-hosting and Elisa Mosley, who is now a regular co-host, and Ed Gonzalez <laughs> for the interview. Impact is a co-production of Nevada Voice and KUNV. 
with CCSD parents and no racism in schools. The music you're listening to right now is Vampire Weekend's Oxford Comma. It's become one of my favorites. The music you listened to at the beginning and before the interview was Foster the People's Life on the Nickel. We're going to be back tomorrow at 7 p.m. You can get this show and other shows on KUNV.org. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Thank you for listening to Impact.